Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that your light would shine. That you would shine upon our hearts, illumine our hearts and our minds so that we may see clearly who Jesus Christ is, what he has come to do, and we would respond accordingly. Lord, we pray all this for the sake of Jesus' strong, powerful name. Amen. You may be seated. As we move along through Matthew, we come now to a new section of Matthew. And Matthew has made it very clear to us Jesus' true identity. He is none other than the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, that He is very God of very God. He is God who has taken on human flesh. And we've seen over the last few weeks that Jesus has uh, been prepared for His earthly ministry through His baptism, through the Father's declaration over Him, And being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And over the last few weeks we've seen that all of this was to fulfill all righteousness. All of this was for us. But it was also to prepare Christ for his work on the cross. And his future work as our gracious high priest. And so now as we come to Matthew Four, chapter of verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This is a new section of Matthew. And many scholars think Matthew has organized his gospel around five units of teaching and action of Jesus. Around what he did and what he taught. And we begin one of those new sections now. In chapter 4, uh, verse 12, until the end of chapter 7, we're going to see some some of what Jesus did, but then we're going to see his, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And then the next section begins in chapter 8 and goes to chapter 11, and then chapter 11 to 13, and then 13 to 18, and then 19 to 25. And so you have these five blocks that Matthew is building the story of Jesus for us. And our new section begins, Now when Jesus heard that John was arrested... He withdrew into Galilee. Matthew will later explain in more detail in chapters 11 and chapter 14 what's going on with John the Baptist. Why he was arrested. Why he was eventually killed. Matthew's going to give us a flashback into what happened with John. And so we'll get to that later when we get to chapter 11 and chapter 14. But Matthew, along with Mark and Luke, they skip over... The first year of Jesus' ministry. So we have from verses 11 to 12, in between verses 11 and 12, about a year that Matthew doesn't record for us. But we're not totally in the dark about what happened in that year because John, in his gospel, records what happened in that first year of Jesus' ministry in the gospel of John, chapters 1 to 4. And many familiar stories happened in that first year of Jesus' ministry. He turned the water into wine. He cleansed the temple. He had his late night chat with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Those are some of the things we learned from John in the first year of Jesus' ministry. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke have seen fit by the Holy Spirit not to include those stories in their gospel. 
And so Matthew skips ahead this initial year of Jesus' ministry and moves right into, after John has been arrested, Jesus moves from Nazareth. In verse 13, it says, In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So why is Matthew spending this time here to tell us that Jesus, he, he, he moved from Nazareth, he went to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was a largely, he, he moved from the country to the city. This was a largely populated area. It had a major trade route running through it. Many, many fishing villages. Business was booming. But this was a largely Gentile area a largely non-Jewish region of the country. Why is Matthew spending all this time and spending all this energy to tell us why Jesus moved here? Well, I think Matthew is telling us for two main reasons that I want to look at today. First, to fulfill prophecy. First, he's telling us this to show that Jesus is fulfilling what God had promised so long ago in the Old Testament. But secondly... The reason he's telling us this is because he's telling us that Jesus came to bring the light of God to those who are in darkness. To those who are, as it says in the text, in the shadow of death. Two main reasons, to fulfill prophecy and to bring the light of God to those in darkness. And so we begin and look at... Matthew trying to teach us that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And he tells us right there in verse 14. So he moved there so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. And so I want to read the fuller context of Isaiah because this is very familiar to us. Because Christmas wasn't that long ago. And this is one of our favorite texts to read at Christmas. So Isaiah the prophet said, some 700 years before Christ walked the earth, he said, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this day forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
This is Isaiah chapter 9. It is no accident that Matthew is quoting this to point to the reality that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill prophecy and he has come to sit on the throne of his father David. Matthew is spending so much time to show us that Jesus is the king. And what he's going to show us is that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the Gentiles. And what he's going to show us in Matthew 28 is that he's not only the king of the Jews and the king of the Gentiles, he's the king and the ruler of the cosmos, of the universe. And this is exactly what God revealed to Simeon when Jesus, at eight days old, was brought to the temple to be blessed and circumcised. Simeon, who was in the temple in Luke's gospel, chapter 2, he said this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was devout and righteous, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to what was in the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him. And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. From the moment Jesus was born, those who were led by the Holy Spirit saw that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. That he was going to be a light, not only to Israel, but to the nations. And Matthew is pointing out to us again that Jesus, his life, his work, his ministry, what we'll see later is his death, his resurrection. All of these things were prophesied in the Old Testament. And I've said it here again numerous times. Whether you believe the Bible to be God's word or not. It is a fact that Isaiah was written some 700 years before Jesus Christ came to this earth. It was a fact. And so what we know is that these prophecies were made some 700 years before Jesus came. And what the writers of the New Testament tell us is that Jesus Christ is the embodiment, that he is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And Matthew points us once again to the sovereignty of God, to the providence of God. This was to fulfill what God had spoken a long time ago, down to the details of where Jesus would live and where he would conduct his ministry was prophesied by God. Now, here's the thing. Matthew keeps hammering this point. So I'm going to keep hammering this point. God is sovereign over all things. God in his providence placed Jesus, prophesied about where Jesus would live and would minister. And God has done the same for you. He has given you your personality your life, your spouse, where you live. God is sovereign. His providence rules over all. And, and so I want us to step back and say, so, so why is Matthew including this and what does this mean 
for us, it means we can have confidence. We can rest assured that God is for us in Christ. And let's be honest, we need this reminder regularly, don't we, that God is sovereign and in control of all things? As you look at the chaos of our world, you just watch the news for a minute. In between the coronavirus, the presidential election, refugee crisis, things going on in other parts of the world, we could be tempted to think that God's not in control. But the scriptures tell us something else, that he is very much in control. Now, that doesn't mean there's not some mystery there where we scratch our head and say, why is God allowing this to happen? But the point Matthew wants us to get is that we can be confident that God is in control of all things. He's peeling back the curtain, if you will. All this crazy, you think about the craziness that has gone on in the life of Jesus up until this point. Herod trying to murder him. His parents fleeing to Egypt and coming back. John the Baptist being arrested. You would be tempted to think that God's not in this. But he's in it all the way down. We need this reminder and we need to hear that God in his sovereign providence will work all things together for good for his people. That's a promise from God. And you can rest assured in that promise because we see God doing it here in the life of Jesus. He's sovereign. Again, you watch the news, you can get anxious real quick. But God is in control. We are told the place where Jesus went to live was a fulfillment of prophecy. And now we're going to see the purpose of this prophecy. To shine the light of God on those in darkness. So as we step back and as we think about the prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus. God God in his providence, sovereign over all. What was the purpose of Jesus coming here? Well, we're we're told. We're told. In verse 14, we're told that it's a fulfillment of prophecy. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We are told that Jesus came here to shine his light. And what we learn from this is God's love for humanity. God's love for the world. Matthew is telling us where Jesus moved to hint at what we later call in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. To hint that that God's light, God's gospel, God's good news isn't for just a small sect of people. It's for the world. And throughout the Old Testament, we are told that the promises God made to Abraham would one day bless the nations. It's why God called Abraham outside and said, look up at the stars. Number them if you can. I love that. If you can. He promises Abraham that he will have offspring as numerous as the stars. And what we learn later is that this is happening through the gospel. The town where Jesus moved was a largely Gentile town. 
God's intention was never for the light to remain within the nation of Israel. It was always, always for his light to spread across the globe to the people who dwell in darkness. And so Matthew, as he's telling us this, this should remind us of God's love for the world. We read about it in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the judgment, he says. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God's love motivated the sending of the Son. So that he could shine his light to a dark and dying world. So as we look at this text and we see, why is Matthew telling us this? Well, he's telling us this to show us God is in control, that he fulfills prophecy, but also that God loves the world. God wants his light to shine. And and he sent Jesus to this region to fulfill prophecy and to begin shining that light that would one day cover the globe. Last week we saw, so we, so we need to step back and see this idea of light and dark because it's everywhere in the scriptures. Last week we saw that we have an enemy and this enemy is real. From the very first pages of scripture we learn that there's a battle between good and evil, between light and dark. And we know that light will eventually win. But the battle rages. One theological dictionary had this to say about light and dark. Physically, light and darkness exist in metaphysical opposition. Light as an energy source provides illumination, leading to the ability to make visual distinctions among colors, physical objects. Darkness is the absence of light and color, whether as a place or condition, which results in disorientation, distortion, and confusion. Beyond the literal sense of physical illumination or its absence, both light and darkness have broad Figurative applications often in conceptual opposition such as light symbolizing knowledge or understanding and darkness symbolizing ignorance or confusion. So simply put, throughout scripture, light and darkness are seen as spiritual opposites. Darkness is a place of confusion, a place of immorality, a place of death. Despair. It's the realm of the evil one. This is why hell, in the scriptures, Jesus refers to it as the outer darkness. It's the outer limits of darkness. This is why, as we saw in Sunday school, when Christ was crucified on the cross, 
darkness over the land. And this wasn't a normal darkness. This was like the darkness we read about in Exodus when God made it dark. It was a darkness you could feel. You, you ever been somewhere where you felt that darkness? Something's just not right here. Something is wicked here. The scriptures present darkness as the place of confusion and death and despair. But light is its metaphorical opposite. It is the place of enlightenment, of morality, blessing, life, godliness. It's the realm of God. And we see this even in the very beginning pages of scripture where God says to the dark and chaotic void, let there be light. And there was. And the darkness of the cosmos is instantaneously flooded with the light of God. Even scripture at the very end tells us in metaphorical sense that when Christ returns, we won't need the sun because his brightness will illumine everything. Scripture tells us that God created the light. And scripture tells us that the light, physical and spiritual, Come to us from the one who is light in himself. Our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Jews associated, one scholar says, the Jews associated light with God's presence. He created light on the first day and lights on the fourth day of creation. He had revealed himself in a flame to Moses in the Midianite desert in Exodus 3. He had protectively led the Israelites through the wilderness in a cloudy pillar of fire. And he had appeared to them on Mount Sinai in fire. All through scripture, God is associated with light. This is why John says in 1 John, This is the message we have received and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. So God created the light, but God is the light. James says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is intrinsically light within himself. There is no darkness whatsoever in God. This is why Paul says in Timothy, I charge you. He's talking to a young pastor, Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and, to, and of Jesus Christ who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and glory and dominion. God is light and God dwells in unapproachable light. But here's the good news. The God who dwells in unapproachable light did not keep this light to himself. But he sent the light, his very own son. God was not stingy with the light. He sent his son to be the light. And this is where we see in scripture that Jesus is called the light of God. In John 1, in John's beautiful prologue, 
He says, in him, speaking of Jesus, the word of God, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later on in John 8, we see Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is why we talk about, when we think about light and dark, when someone has seen the light, we would say they are enlightened. And if someone hasn't, don't we say, oh, they're still in the dark. Jesus says he is the light and he has come to give the light of life. John 12, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believe not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus came. To fulfill prophecy by living in the land of the Gentiles. But he came to provide light for those who were in darkness. The Jews and the Gentiles. He came to bring the light of God to us. Those of us who dwell in a land of darkness. And notice what he says in verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach. Saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as we stop and think about it, as a preacher, the thing I notice most here is that the first thing Matthew tells us about the ministry of Jesus is that he came preaching. Makes me feel good about my job, right? But seriously, he wanted us to see that Jesus, as he was bringing the light of God, he did that primarily through preaching and teaching God's word. This is the main way throughout history that the light of the good news has been propagated through the preaching and teaching of God's word. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, he says, How then, speaking of those who are far from God, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him in whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what they have heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, I'm willing to step back and say, when Paul's talking about preaching here, he doesn't necessarily just mean what I'm doing now. He means anybody who brings the message of the gospel is a preacher of the gospel. And he tells us that faith is created through the hearing of the word of God and specifically through the preaching of the word of God. This is how he's telling us this light gets propagated. God's people in the Old and the New Testament, like we can read about the signs and wonders God has done and, and, and even is doing and uh, the ministry of, of Moses. and You, you see all this, but... but at the end of the day, God's people in the Old and New Testament have always gathered around and under the preaching and teaching of God's word. It's what God's people do. Preaching is one of the main means God uses to shine the light of his gospel in the hearts of men and women. This is why if you ever leave here, I hope you don't, I hope you stick around, but, but if you ever leave and you're looking for another church, you, you don't look for it based on anything 
But first and foremost, how do they talk about, how do they teach God's word? Is it central? Is it central to what's done? Because it was central to the ministry of Jesus. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We won't spend time there because we looked at it with John the Baptist, but Jesus is preaching what John the Baptist is, was preaching. Jesus is preaching what all the prophets have preached in different words. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and, and so if we step back and we just think about this for a moment, before we met Christ, you, you, you see, since the fall, since the fall, there has been a darkness over all God's creation. There has been a darkness, a curse. And the darkest place of all is the hearts of men and women. Of you and me. The most evil atrocities that have happened in this world have come from the wicked hearts of men and women. And we are born spiritually blind and in the dark. It, in desperate need of the light of Christ. Every single person ever born is born spiritually blind. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. You hear how he's talking about us before we met Christ? You were darkness. But now you are the light and the Lord walk as children of the light. John, going back to John 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light. All of us are born in a state of loving darkness more than light. But what happens when God's light penetrates our heart? What happens when maybe you're sitting under the preaching of God's word, maybe for years? What happens when you open those scriptures and, and it's just, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with someone and we were just talking about something in scripture and they were kind of looking at some other scriptures and they said, it's like a light has gone off in my mind and heart. You ever had that experience when you're in God's word? It's just like, oh my, I, I never saw this before. And, and so what happens when God's light penetrates our hearts through the gospel? I'll be brief as we close. First, we're given new sight. We're given a new family. We're placed in a new kingdom. And we're called to walk a new walk. First, when God's light penetrates, we are given new sight. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them, listen to this, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying that the, the God of this world, Satan, has, has, the blind, has the hearts and the minds of unbelievers veiled, covered in blindness and darkness. But, but when the gospel comes forth, when we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, God who said, let light shine in the darkness back in Genesis 1, 
does that in our hearts. It's why you can go to church for years and years. And then sometimes you say, wow, I feel like I'm getting it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher in England, great preacher. His wife sat on his ministry for years. And one day, God's light penetrated this pastor's wife. And she said, I had never believed before that moment. Pastor's wife. It can happen to any of us. We're given new sight. That veil is lifted. The spiritual blindness dissipated so that we can see. Notice what it says. So that we can see the glory of Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We're given a new sight, but we're also we're given a new family. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We are called children of light. We have been adopted by the Father and His family. We are called children of light. Not only are we given a new family, but, but we're, given a new, we're placed in a new kingdom. We have a new king. We have a new ruler, a new lord. It is no longer our own hearts that are, is our Lord, is Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we trust Christ, we are placed into the kingdom of light. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. This is why when you become a Christian, things start changing. You start thinking about the world differently. And let's be honest, and this will be the last point. This is a process. The moment we trust Christ, we're placed into his family. We're placed in his kingdom. That's instantaneous. But our growth in the light, it's ongoing. It's ongoing, and this is why we are called to walk or to remain in the light. This light of Christ is not static. It can grow in us. And as we spend time under the preaching of the word, as we spend time uh, sharing God's word, sharing the gospel, as we spend time in the word with the light of the world, we begin to change. This is why the psalmist says, for with you, O God, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Paul says, for at one time in Ephesians 5, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything becomes visible in light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. First John says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God, him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What a great picture of what spiritual growth looks like. We, we, we walk in the light of God and we fellowship with him. But, but let's be honest, we, we, we sin and often we still love those, those things of darkness, whatever they may be. But, but we're told that if we come to God and confess our sins, he forgives us. And so a, a, as we close today and as we think about Christ as the light of the world, let me ask you this. Maybe you're here today and, and you've never trusted Christ. You've never seen his light. You've never had his light shine in your heart and show you that you're a sinner in need of his grace. And show you that he came and lived the perfect life you could never live. And show you that he died on the cross and three days later he rose from the dead. Maybe you're here today and he's calling you even in this moment to respond to his light. Well, I encourage you, friend, look outside of yourself and look to Christ. Look to him alone as your light, as your salvation, as your only means to the Father. But, but, but maybe you're here today and you've already trusted Christ and you need a wake-up call. You need to be reminded again that you're just... You're holding on to things of darkness and not letting them go and pursuing the light. Maybe that's you here today. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. Friends and those who have trusted Christ, hear these words. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray.